Welcome to another episode of Raising OKC Kids, Conversations with Metro Family in Oklahoma City. I'm Kirsten Holder, and today we're talking about Diabetes Awareness Month with Senator Carrie Hicks, a mother of three who also advocates for all Oklahoma's children in the state Senate and currently represents District 40. A little fun fact, she was also a 2021 Awesome Mom finalist for Metro Family Magazine, nominated by fellow Senator Julia Kurt. Senator Hicks, we are so happy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Kirsten. I'm really excited to, to speak with you all today. Yes, so a little bit of introduction. Um, you were formerly a public educator um, and elected in 2018. Since that time, Senator Hicks has championed safety for babies and children in many common areas of concern, including public education, seatbelt safety, stronger laws protecting breastfeeding, and better health access for all, especially Oklahomans who have few healthcare options. An area that's especially close to Senator Hicks's heart includes advocacy and solutions for individuals with diabetes to get the appropriate and affordable care that they need. She is currently the chair for the Diabetes Caucus and has actually initiated much of this work from her personal experience as a mom. Her seven-year-old son, Sawyer, has type one diabetes. Aside from her work, Senator Hicks lives in Oklahoma City with her husband of 10 years, Spencer, and they are the proud parents of three children. So just jumping right in, um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your son um, Sawyer. So how did you know that he had type 1 diabetes? What did his diagnosis look like? And what is it like to parent a child with diabetes? Sure. So um, this, this time of year is always a little um, sentimental for our family because it was actually around Halloween when we started noticing um, some different behavior with our son. So he was 17 months old at the time, and we just started to notice that he his disposition was changing. Um, he's naturally just a fun, bubbly personality, and he was starting to become a little cranky and grouchy. Um, you know, at the time, it seemed that he was cutting his molars. And so we assumed that much of that change um, was due to the discomfort that he was experiencing with molars. Um, you know, he ended up getting sick um, and had kind of flu-like symptoms. And, and so, you know, it was basically explained away as um, potentially some kind of a virus that he had contracted, um, but it just continued to persist. And so, you know, I think with anything, parents are constantly trying to figure out, okay, you know, it's been more than 10 days. Is there something else that's going on with my child? So we noticed um, now what we know are all the symptoms um, associated with um, his diagnosis of type one diabetes. Um, he was um, losing weight. Um, he'd become lethargic. Um, he was vomiting frequently. And that was because he was experiencing what's called diabetic ketoacidosis. Um, so we were actually hospitalized um, and later um, found out that he was within about 30 minutes um, of, of losing his life. Um, so our, our story was pretty um, terrifying, very scary in that, you know, our family doesn't have any history of type 1 diabetes. And so we, we were unfamiliar with what was happening to our son. Uh, we were able to, you know, get him on some fluids um, since he was severely dehydrated at the time of diagnosis. Um, but then we weren't out of the woods yet because um, since his blood sugars were so elevated, there was a risk of brain damage in um, bringing him down to regular levels because of swelling. So we spent about four days um, in the pediatric ICU unit here in Oklahoma City at Deaconess um, at Baptist Hospital. 
And, um, you know, we had a fantastic care team that really walked us through relearning how to keep our kiddo alive. Um, I was pregnant at the time with our second, so we had our, our gender reveal in the ICU. Um, you know, but you just, just with anything, you know, we, we just listened to the experts, um, tried to understand exactly what we needed to do moving forward. Um, and, um, thankfully it's a team effort. So my husband's very involved in our care treatment. Um, we both leave, lead very active, um, lifestyles, um, both, you know, with work and, um, in our personal lives. And so it's just really important that we, kind of tackle this as a team. Um, and so, you know, now as a parent to a type one, uh, as you said, he's seven, so he's thriving. Um, we're really, really fortunate to have some really great cutting edge technology that helps us keep him within range. Um, but, you know, it is still just kind of an ongoing um, concern, especially around the holidays, because there's so many homemade meals that, that you know, we're not quite sure what the carb count is or, <laughs> you know, being able to accurately um, dose him for his insulin since he is still so small, um, you know, insulin can be fatal if it's given in the wrong um, dosage. So um, we are we are very active um, in making sure that he's, um, you know, maintaining his his appropriate levels, but the school has been a really great partner. So we have a, a nurse um, on site at his elementary school who is amazing at communication. And so it really just, um, for us, um, we've, we've decided not to have his blood sugar levels on any of our devices because we, we want to train and trust the individuals that he's with. Um, and that's working for our family. So we're really really thankful to have, um, you know, a nurse there who understands kind of our family dynamic um, and is just an invaluable part of our treatment plan. Wow. I, I cannot imagine having a little child, especially as young as he was in the situation you all were in, that must have been terribly, terribly horrifying. And especially being pregnant, there's a lot of emotions <laughs> going on anyway when it's your own baby, but then, you know, the cocktail of emotions that come with pregnancy on top of that. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad to hear he's doing better. So from what I understand, children are more likely to be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Um, type 1 is classified as an autoimmune disease, and genetics play a part. Um, type 2 diabetes occurs more commonly in adults, but type 2 diabetes in children is actually on the rise as well, fueled by uh, the obesity epidemic. What are some other types? Um, what are some of the differences, excuse me, between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? And are there any other forms of diabetes we should know about? Sure. So um, type one is an autoimmune disorder. So ultimately his body just decided to attack his pancreas. <laughs> um, so the beta cells are what produces insulin in the body. And since um, this autoimmune disorder attacks the beta cells, which means that they're unable to produce any insulin um, for themselves. Um, insulin is like the magic key. It unlocks the cells so that the nutrients can cross into the cell and feed um, you know, the body. And so without insulin, um, you, you cannot live, you cannot survive. Um, so with type one, it's ongoing insulin injections, basically anytime you're eating in order for those nutrients to, to reach the cell, um, they, they have to administer insulin in some form. 
with type two, um, it's really what's, what's considered a rejection of insulin. So your body is still producing it, um, but there's a resistance for that insulin to work. And so um, there's different forms of treatment. Um, some of them are the same with type two diabetes, but um, especially if you're pre-diabetic, you can actually um, you know, prevent that um, diagnosis by you know, a, a healthier or active lifestyle, um, making sure that you're eating you know, leafy green vegetables and all the good um, things in the proper amounts that have great nutrients to feed your body um, and making sure that you're physically active. Um, and so you know, with, with type two diabetes, um, the goal is that you could actually reverse um, that diagnosis through proper diet and exercise. Um, in type one, that's, that's not possible um, unless your body just started producing um, beta cells and insulin on its own. Um, and so th there is gestational diabetes as well. And so that can occur during pregnancy. It can lead to um, either type one or type two after the baby's born. Um, but through gestational diabetes, obviously it's the same course of treatment for type two and just making sure that you're um, staying away from certain foods that could trigger um, you know, a negative reaction and making sure that you're really eating some, some great quality foods that would be good for yourself and for the baby. Yes, yes. Uh, so many things to consider when you're pregnant, like we just said, but um, especially for the health and longevity of your own family. And as you mentioned, you don't even have a history of type one diabetes in your own family. So I'm sure your diagnosis for your son was a little bit blindsiding in that regard. Yeah. And I mean, what we've learned now is that it actually, you know, it does take um, both parents um, somehow having a genetic composition that would lead to the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. My husband and I have both now since been tested for those markers and neither one of us carry them. Um, but, you know, we, we basically, again, you know, we just see ourselves as, as partners um, and as a team and in, in raising our kiddos. And so, um, you know, thankfully there's no blame game. It's not, you know, my family or his family. It's just um, the set of circumstances that we were handed. And, um, you know, we really, I mean, our goal is to just advocate and make sure that parents and families understand the risks and know what to look for in case um, this was a diagnosis that their family receives at some point. Absolutely. So you mentioned some of the telltale symptoms that you noticed with your son, the lethargy, the flu symptoms, um, dehydration later on. Um, are there any other telltale symptoms and are they similar between type one and type two? Yes. Um, with type two, it's a little bit uh, tricky because it, it, I mean, you could basically be living with type two diabetes and not know for years. There's lots of folks um, in that situation. Um, but with type one, I mean, it was a pretty um, steep um, decline in his overall health. Um, it was just like an unquenchable thirst. And so um, since he was 17 months old, he was still in diapers. Um, and, you know, we were first time parents. And, you know, I just kept thinking, oh my gosh, why are the crib sheets wet in the morning? I mean, just, um, you know, he had been taking in so much fluid, but it wasn't, again, passing to that cellular, cellular level. So he was just so, so, so thirsty, um, which meant he was urinating much more frequently, um, which meant that the crib sheets were wet in the morning and being first-time parents, we thought, well, is this when we go to the overnight diapers? I don't know, you know, oh, <laughs> we're yes. just trying to figure it out. Um, but, you know, I mean, a significant shift in the personality is another big um, symptom and significant weight loss. Um, so a lot of times, you know, if um, kids are not um, in DKA or, or diabetic ketoacidosis, but parents are like, really starting to notice these things specifically like in teenagers 
um, the doctors will ask, well, you know, what were they wearing at the last holiday? Basically trying to figure out if they've decreased in their size or if they're losing weight um, so that they can, you know, make an informed diagnosis. Sure. Yeah, those are those are good markers. And sometimes it's hard to tell, like you said, developmental stages. You don't know if this is just kind of normal development. You know, sometimes kids get a little bit rounder in the tummy before they get taller. So is this just part of, of how it goes or is this something more concerning? So it's really interesting to hear you talk through all of those symptoms that could be kind of dismissed as commonplace. Yeah, and I think another, um, you know, I mean, this is just uh, a, a theory and a question I know in the medical community um, is that we, we notice a significant increase in diagnosis in type one and young people after any viral outbreak. So mm -hmm. if a school is shut down because of their flu, um, you can almost bet that there will be, you know, one or two individuals that are recently diagnosed with type one diabetes. Um, and with COVID, that, that trend has remained true. Um, there was at least a 20% increase in um, juveniles that have been diagnosed with type one um, in the wake of COVID. And so the theory is that ultimately this, you know, uh, any kind of virus could potentially unlock um, whatever was uh, genetically predisposed um, for that diagnosis. And so, you know, for our family, you know, it wasn't necessarily a question of whether he would ever develop type one diabetes, but just when. And mm -hmm. so, you know, he potentially could have had some kind of a virus and then, um, you know, the diagnosis came afterwards. Um, you know, we'll never really, really know for sure or for certain, but it is something to, to be aware of. Um, if those flu-like symptoms persist beyond that 10-day window, then that's a a pretty good time to make sure that you're contacting your pediatrician and making sure that you understand that there could possibly be something else going on. Absolutely. Wow. So unfortunately in 2019, the CDC rated Oklahoma the fifth, fifth worst in the nation for diabetes related death rate. Do you have any idea why we could be ranked so highly and what does diabetes care look like in Oklahoma comparative to the rest of the country? Sure. So um, it's definitely related to the rate of type two in our state. Um, I will say, you know, the, the um, southern eating cuisine um, can significantly increase your chances of developing type two. Um, we love butter. <laughs> Who doesn't? Um, you know, we love, um, you know, lots of red meat, um, but all of these things um, we know do increase your chances of developing type two diabetes. And so, um, you know, the things that, that I'm continuing to, to elevate and the concerns that I have in relation to our growing number of folks with type 2 diabetes is just making sure that they have good education and access to therapy. Um, so when I'm talking about therapy, I'm talking about insulin and insulin is really, really expensive. Um, so we've, we've been able to pass some, um, some changes, some improvements to our laws here in Oklahoma. Um, you know, two years ago, um, the AARP had released some information that one in five Oklahomans had gone without needed medications in the prior year. Um, that that absolutely leads to um, a higher incidence of death um, if you're not maintaining um, your diagnosis. And, and again, it's education. So if people don't know that they have it um, and or you know, are unwilling to change their lifestyle and their habit um, after their diagnosis, that absolutely leads to a higher um, incidence of mortality. Sure. Yes. The access and also kind of the shift in mindset need to go hand in hand and one in five. That is incredible. 
Um, so tell us a little bit more about your work and advocacy in Oklahoma for diabetes care, um, specifically the treatment and cost. Looking at the research, like you said, insulin is expensive. The cost of care for people with diabetes now accounts for one in four healthcare dollars spent in the US and care for a person with diabetes now costs an average of nearly $17,000 per year, um, which is just unattainable for many of us. Um, so I'd love to hear more about the work you're doing in those areas. Yeah, so um, a big key um, to making these needed changes um, lies in our insurance companies. Um, so we've been able to make some really um, positive headway, specifically with health choice um, health plans, which is something that the state has control over. Um, and so one of the major wins or the major victories that we experienced with the Diabetes Caucus recently um, is that health choices now um, covering the cost of a continuous glucose monitor for kids. Mm -hmm. um, so prevention is the best treatment. Um, you know, I've, I've said this to my colleagues many times in that, um, you know, if I understand not wanting to put more mandates on insurance companies, but you can pay it now or you can pay it later. Um, because, you know, if, if we don't have access to the things that we know um, lead for a much more fruitful life, um, individuals will become disabled because of amputation or loss of eyesight or other um, significant complications related to diabetes, um, which means that they won't be in the workforce. Um, they'll probably be on disability. Um, so those are some significant costs that we incur as taxpayers. And so for me, um, it makes much more sense to use those dollars wisely on prevention and making sure that people um, you know, have a monitoring system that works for them. Um, children, especially if you can make sure that they have access even to a pump or to other devices that make um, you know, the lifestyle work um, for the family, then we know that they'll be able to stay in the workforce and become much more productive citizens long-term, um, which is you know, in essence, you know, what I think the Diabetes Caucus stands for is just trying to um, work together with industry partners, insurance plans, the medical field, um, drug manufacturers. I mean, everyone's at the table because we know that it's going to take all of us to make significant changes um, that will help everyone uh, ultimately, because if, if an employee is missing work because they're having um, complications, then the business is out those dollars and that productivity for the day. So um, this really, in my opinion, you know, should touch everyone um, in, in understanding that, you know, greater dollars upfront on prevention will ultimately benefit all of us um, long term. Absolutely. And, and I like your point about the direct relation to um, our economy in our state. Doing those early preventative measures can make us more productive citizens um, and contributors to our state. And so it's beyond, you know, it's not just a personal issue. There's a larger impact and a larger footprint. I like that point. Absolutely. But just as a follow up to that question, um, what are some of your future hopes for Oklahoma as a state as it relates to reducing the prevalence of diabetes and or improving diagnosis and access to care? So one of the major goals for the Legislative Caucus this year um, lies in rebates reform. Um, so you'll have to um, excuse some of the inside terminology, but I'll try and make it um, as, as a as frank and honest as possible. <laughs> it's taken me three years to get to this level of understanding. So, um, and I was living this every single day as, as a parent of a type one, but um, the way in which our um, healthcare system is structured right now, uh, there are rebates involved in um, specific prescriptions. So 
insulin, for instance, um, you know, the insurance company is, is obviously going to pay out that reimbursement rate. Now we have um, what are called pharmacy benefit managers. The idea, or at least um, how they began to exist in our healthcare system was that they were there to basically negotiate the lowest price possible um, to make sure that everything that was being put on this list or the formulary that would then be given to the insurance companies to cover um, was the lowest um, price possible. Um, the, the challenges start to occur when you realize those PBMs are paid on a percentage of the list price and not at a flat fee. And so there's really kind of a conflict of interest for them to actually negotiate the lowest price to put on that formulary when they're going to be losing money potentially. And so um, one of the things that we've noticed and we've been able to kind of gather research is that as drug manufacturers have taken responsibility in their, um, you know, they're basically owned their um, mistakes or, or, or are willing to kind of come to the table and say, you know what, this, this is incredibly um, costly for the individuals. We're going to cut our price in half. So they've come to the table to negotiate in good faith. Um, and now those uh, prescriptions are not finding their way to the formulary because the PBMs or the pharmacy benefit managers have excluded them from being covered from the insurance companies. Uh, because there are rebates involved. And, you know, there's, again, it's a very complicated system. They've, uh, in my opinion, created it this way so that people like you and me have a really hard time trying to figure out who we should be upset with <laughs> and why and why we're being charged so much money. Um, and so, you know, suffice it to say, if I boil it all down, um, one of the things that we're working on is rebates reform. So those rebates were intended to bring the cost down to the consumer. But what's happening is those rebates are being paid to the insurance companies. So not only are they getting reimbursed for the cost of the drug, but they're also collecting a rebate from the PBM. And so there's, in my opinion, somewhat of a double dipping. And as a result, the consumer doesn't see any reduction um, or very little reduction um, at, the, at the counter. Um, so what we're advocating for is that at the, at the point of sale or at the point of purchase, the consumer receives that rebate back from the manufacturer so that it significantly reduces the cost to the consumer. Um, this is in my opinion, one of the most important things we could do to make sure that people do have access to those life-saving medicines, be it insulin or any other um, necessary medications to manage illnesses. If individuals are not able to take the medicines they need in order to keep themselves healthy, I don't, I don't have much hope um, for the future health of our state. So this is a, an absolutely uh, imperative um, policy for us to pass this year. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing all that and kind of breaking it down because I'm sure we all had a feeling that that was kind of what was going on, <laughs> but it's, it's good to kind of hear, you know, exactly the details and exactly the way forward to if we can get everybody to come to the table. So we really appreciate your work in that area because I'm sure it's just head banging against the wall most of the time trying to make everybody happy. <laughs> well, and it's just trying to find the truth. Um, you know, I, I understand that companies need to make money. I'm definitely not against, um, you know, recouping costs for research and development. Um, but, you know, when a product's been on the market with, you know, relatively few substantive changes for, you know, 30 plus years, there's, it's a really hard sell to understand that there are that many costs that, that the company is still incurring. So, you know, I think it's just about knowing the information, getting an honest answer, and then holding those folks accountable. 
Absolutely. Yes. So if you have a history of diabetes in your family, or even if you don't in your case, what are some preventative measures to start now within your own household? We mentioned diet, especially around the holidays, kind of following mom's advice of eating one green thing on your plate every meal. Um, but what are, what are some other preventative measures you can take? You know, I, I think that the biggest prevention for, for my, I'm just going to speak for myself, um, but it's limiting screen time. Uh, wow. making sure that you are intentional about movement and activity. And, and I know it's hard um, to disengage from the devices, but uh, again, your kids are watching. And so you are really setting them up for a lifetime of habits based on what, what you're doing as the parent in the household. And so, um, you know, screen-free Sundays are a good way to kind of tiptoe um, into that direction of just really making it a family priority to, you know, disengage from your devices so that you can also have attentive kids um, playing board games, going for walks, going on a nature hike, uh, making it fun. I think when, um, you know, you kind of think of like, oh gosh, I got a meal plan and I got to count my calories and then I've got to make sure I'm at the gym and I'm doing all these things. Um, you know, that's, that's not fulfilling. And, and I think it could be much more stressful. So, you know, I just think finding joy in the little things, um, whether it's, you know, challenging um, yourself or your family members to come up with a creative recipe for that green, you know, and trying new things out um, and really just discovering, I think the joy of, of living a much more healthy and fulfilling life. Um, you know, again, those, those devices, I think, um, are intended to distract us from seeing what's in front of us. And so if we can disengage from the screens for a while, it really puts things back into focus of, of what our priorities need to be. I love that. I love the way you just put all of that. We know that screen time is not the best for our kids or for us, but when you think about it again, in a larger scope of what you could be doing, if you weren't engaging in screen time, if your kids weren't engaging in screen time, and especially as it relates to your physical health. Um, and then I also like you kind of breaking it down as a you know, not another thing on the to-do list because especially moms, but all parents in general, our mental load is through the roof. We're looking for some relief. So finding ways to have fun with our family, that's all, that's something we all want to do. That's something we're all working toward. And that's why we're all doing what we're doing every day. So that you're, that is a great, great tip. I really appreciate that. For other parents who are advocating for a child with special needs or disability or health issues, what encouragement or advice can you leave them with today? Um, you know, the reality is a lot of the folks that I serve with are very well-intentioned individuals. Most of us seek public office because we have a real calling to make a difference in our communities. Um, so my, my advice to any advocate um, is to just get to know your representatives, get to know your senator, engage in the process. Um, you know, it can be overwhelming, but it doesn't have to be. Um, at the end of the day, we're all moms and dads um, who are concerned about the way things are going in our state. And even if we disagree um, on the path um, to whatever that outcome is, I think a lot of times we have the same goals in mind. Uh, we all wanna have um, a much brighter future for um, the next generation of Oklahomans. We can argue about how to get there, um, but at the end of the day, I think we all need to recognize the humanity um, within ourselves and within our elected officials. So, you know, just reach out um, via email, give them a call, um, you know, just see if you can have 15 minutes of their time to connect and share your story. We are all experts at our own life story. And so mm -hmm. the, the things that you bring to the conversation, the challenges that you experience, 
um, whatever setbacks or obstacles you're facing as a family are absolutely valuable in, in explaining um, what the possible solutions or changes might be. And so if um, your elected representatives um, really, really care uh, about the challenges that you're experiencing, it will, it will prompt them to take action. They will be able to either enact policy or have discussions with other leaders um, at the agency level or in the community to really start to bring about positive change. But it starts by sharing your story. And we all have to be vulnerable enough to share the good and the bad um, because you know I, I, I tend to want to always paint a rosy picture on things, but there are definitely nights where we're up all night monitoring um, Sawyer's glucose levels or the you know pump malfunctions and we've got to, you know, redo a site change or CGM, you know, I mean, there are always, always, always challenges. So just being honest, um, first and foremost, um, you know, with yourself and then thinking about, you know, what could make this better um, and engaging those folks. Um, you know, I, I think the, the great thing about serving in the state of Oklahoma is that we're, we're all really, really active in our communities. And so we're very, very accessible elected officials. And so just take advantage of that. And, um, you know, it, it shouldn't be uh, a scary or intimidating process to just reach out and talk about the things that are really concerning you. Um, because I think there are always really, really um, strong solutions in sharing your story. Thank you so much for sharing that today. We really appreciate your time. For those of us joining, um, you can follow Senator Carrie Hicks's journey and her accomplishments on Instagram. Her handle is at Hicks4, number four, okay, or Facebook at Hicks for Senate. Um, this has really just been so informative. And I know I spoke speak for so many of us when I say that your servant leadership and advocacy uh, for families in our state is astounding. I appreciate you sharing um, your professional work and also your personal story, and then giving us some permission to do so as well. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Thank you, Kirsten. It's been lovely spending time with you. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us and uh, listen in next time for Raising OKC Kids.